Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us once again. Once again, you're joining me from my bedroom. No, not because the kids are once again in some COVID lockdown. Thankfully, that hasn't happened again just yet. No, this time it is for mund- more mundane reasons. A few days ago, I uh, heard this gurgling noise coming from the kitchen. And as I entered it, like some kind of demon, my washing machine was spouting water out the top of it. It's going over the hobs, it's going over the table, it's going all over the floor. I bravely fight my way towards the demon itself and manage to tame it by turning it off at the plug. Then the diagnostic process begins. I feel like Broken electronics is very much like trying to sort out the human body. There's a finite number of things that can go wrong. You've got your list of symptoms. You might have some signs. You can piece it all together. A quick bit of Googling, just like medicine as well during most of my telephone consultations these days. And my working diagnosis is that this is a problem with the pressure system, failing to recognize that the water is getting pretty high. So it's got to be the switch or it's got to be the hose or the hoses come undone, or something, I think. So I'm trying to be more self-sufficient during lockdown. I take most of the washing machine apart, take off the roof, I take off the electronic panel at the front, I have a good look inside. The hose bit goes down further to the bottom. It turns out that washing machines are very much like examining the very elderly. They have many, many layers on. You can peel them like an onion, and there's still more. There's still more cloves. You still can't get to the bit that you need to get to. Eventually, you reach the conclusion it's time to get the specialists in. So thank you for joining us on the Washing Machine Weekly Podcast. Oh, wait. Sorry. Wrong podcast. No, it's Friday the 5th of March. This is actually the Hot Topics Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast. My name is Neil Tucker, but you probably know that by now. While I remember, quick plug for the new Hot Topics course. So that's starting tomorrow. So Saturday, the 6th of March. Simon Curtis is presenting along with Sarah Davies and uh, I'm the wingman. So it's going to be the three of us having a little party on a Saturday please do sign up. And of course, if you're with NB+, so our new subscription service, then that course is included. Just log in whenever you fancy. And if you've not come across NB+, before, it's a fantastic deal. Basically, for just under £300 a year, you get access to everything we do. All the courses, you can watch them live or stream them back at any point throughout the year, get all the booklets um, digitally online, you get access to the online modules and everything else that we do. It's an absolute bargain. So if you're thinking about doing more than one course in a year from NB, it's better value to sign up. All the details are on the website. And if you can't join us tomorrow, don't worry, you can either watch it on demand or we're going to be doing a few more live dates throughout the spring and summer. Do check out the website for those. In this episode, we are going to have a chat about what's going on in the news, a little bit on COVID, violence in Wales, um, long COVID in kids, universal vaccines. Then we'll have a look at some of the published research in the major journals. So a little bit in the BMJ and uh, a good look at the latest edition of the BJGP, which once again, very, very thought provoking. So unsurprisingly, the news continues to be dominated by 
chat about COVID and variants and vaccines. And whilst we were all getting a bit worried that the vaccines were going to be rather hopeless against variants, that doesn't seem to be the case. I think it's really difficult for us to try and keep on top of the information that keeps coming out. We have more and more vaccines. Each of those potentially has a slightly different response to each of the different variants. How do we talk to patients when they're asking us those questions as we're jabbing them in the arm? I think it's getting increasingly hard and I think that's only going to get harder. We're getting more vaccines coming on board. There's this new one from Johnson & Johnson, which sounds really promising because it's a single dose. That's really important for countries where the infrastructure is not well set up for delivering mass vaccinations. But also it'd be really handy here because I think probably we're all starting to feel the pressure now, aren't we? I was really positive about the whole GPs vaccinating. And I think we've done amazing things. General practice has delivered 80% of the COVID vaccines in the UK, which is absolutely staggering. Hospitals have done a bit. These mass vaccination centres don't seem to have really lived up to their title just yet. But we've really managed to pull it out the bag. In fact, it narks me a little bit because as I've been reading the popular press over the last couple of weeks, they've been talking a lot about the success of the COVID vaccination programme and how well the top management have done in delivering it all. And I'm sure they've faced some challenges in trying to get the logistics all set up. But actually, the reality is, what they've done is they've given us a bunch of vaccines, they send them through to us and they, they've just left it up to us to get things sorted. And we've risen to that challenge. But the reality is we've done that by ourselves with really very little direction. And I hope as people are reading all these magazine and, and newspaper articles that they, they appreciate not just the intrinsic role that we have played as general practice, but as the majority role things are about to get much tougher for us because although we've done a great job up to now, if we want to maintain that momentum, now that we've got the 12 weekers coming back around who need their second doses, we're effectively going to have to double the number of vaccinations that we're doing every single week. And I think that's a, that is going to be a real challenge. I'm not entirely sure quite how we're going to manage that. I have been really impressed with the number of people who have been volunteering for these clinics. So retired clinicians, um, GPs, nurses, pharmacists, clinicians who just somehow have a bit of spare time and really want to help out. So I take my hat off to all those volunteers. Thank you. Now, let's have a little look at the latest COVID research. Firstly, long COVID in kids. So I've just done a course on the for MB Medical on long COVID with such high circulating rates over the last couple of months. We're seeing loads of long COVID at the moment, people having symptoms going on for two or three months. And even people who are still having symptoms from the start of the very first wave one year ago now. But people aren't really talking about long COVID in kids. Most of the research is based around adults. But we're now starting to get reports come out about the effects that it's having on children. So one study was from Italy following up 129 children who had been admitted to hospital between March and November last year, um, aged 6 to 16. And they found that four months, so four months after they first had that infection, over half still had one enduring symptom and 43% of those um, reported impairment of their daily activities as a result of that. Now, one presumes by virtue of the fact they were in hospital, they were at the more severe end of the spectrum of COVID for kids. UK data suggests that 13% of children aged 2 to 11 
And almost 15% aged 12 to 16 still have enduring symptoms at five weeks after the first infection. And that's data pulled from 500,000 children throughout the UK who have tested positive since March 2020. We tend to think that kids don't really get COVID very much. But of course, if any of you have got um, teenagers, secondary school aged children, then you'll know that that's absolutely not the case. It is rife in, um, it was rife in schools until not that long ago. None of this research really tells us what to do with these children and how best to help. But I think we can go back to basic principles. And the most important thing is just, just to acknowledge to those children and their parents that, yes, this is a problem in kids. They do get long COVID. Their symptoms can keep going on for many, many weeks or many months. And our role is to help support them and obviously keep an open mind in case there could be some other underlying cause for their symptoms. Now, the next piece of COVID research was published in JAMA just a couple of days ago. And this was the association between COVID-19 lockdown measures and emergency, emergency department visits for violence-related injuries in Cardiff, Wales. And I include this not because I think it's a particularly groundbreaking piece of research. I mostly include it because it's from the UK and it reminds me of a stag do I went on about 15 years ago. So I was best man to one of my best mates. We decided that we'd go to the Welsh countryside for a long weekend. We started that, however, in Cardiff overnight. We went out for a few drinks and I just remember the absolute carnage. We were walking down one of the main streets. I can't remember if it's Castle Street, Westgate Street. It was somewhere near a kebab place. Lots of us had turned up quite late. So we were relatively sober, even at about 1 a.m. in the morning. But it was a scene of devastation. There were people fighting all over the place. There were people lying around in their own sick. There were um, people trying to have sex. There were, um, uh, there were people just pissing in the street. And I think maybe I must have been living a fairly sheltered life up to that point because I suspect this is maybe just being repeated in every, every major city every weekend all over the UK. Anyway, this piece of research examined A&E attendances for violence-related injuries, um, excluding self-injury, um, from January 2019, so before the pandemic started, and then comparing this to during the first lockdown. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the numbers went down from 28 per week to 16 and a half per week. What can we learn from this? Well, if you lock everyone down, you don't let them go to the pubs and get really drunk, then you don't get people fighting in the streets afterwards. Uh, obviously, this is not a long-term solution to the problem of violence. Permanent lockdown is never going to work. What we really need is for people to drink less and hug more. If anyone from public health is listening, please can you try and make that policy? The other important lesson from this is that the numbers of violent injuries outside the home were where the big gains were made. So they went down significantly, but the number of violent injuries from within the home didn't change. So it acts as a reminder just that we always need to be vigilant about the potential for domestic abuse at home. Now, the last bit on COVID to talk about is the potential for a universal vaccine. So we're all getting a bit stressed about these variants and whether various different um, vaccines are going to be effective for different variants. Wouldn't it be great if we just had something that worked for everything and not just SARS-CoV-2, but for SARS um, number one and MERS as well, maybe even 
for the coronaviruses that have caused previous pandemics and now just caused the common cold. And the good news is that work is well underway for universal vaccines. There are a few in the pipeline. There is no chance that they're going to be rolled out as fast as the current SARS-CoV-2 vaccines have been. And they do pose significantly greater challenges for scientists than being able to focus on just one virus. But I think this is a really promising idea. And wouldn't it be great if we had a vaccine that reduced the number of common colds by a quarter every year? Sign me up. My sleeve is already rolled. Okay, let's take a little look at this month's BJGP that came through our digital letterboxes just a couple of days ago. And once again, I think this is a really, really good addition. Lots of thought-provoking articles, highly relevant to us in day-to-day practice. Lots of talk about health inequalities. It's the 50-year anniversary since Julian Tudor Hart introduced the world to the concept of the inverse care law. And the editor's just pointing out that, in fact, in those 50 years, we seem to have made absolutely no progress on health inequalities. Now, before we get too hard on ourselves, this is not really the fault of general practice. 80% of people's health determinants are things like housing, education, employment. What we do really is just tweaking around the edges. And of course, the pandemic has not just opened our eyes to health inequalities, particularly in the um, in ethnic minority communities and in communities of high levels of socioeconomic deprivation, but it's clearly widening health and social inequalities even, even further. Now, one of the editorials talks about primary care funding and how this entrenches health inequalities. The current systems for working out funding have a tendency to shift money away from the highest areas of deprivation. And it talks about a change in funding to proportionate universalism, where there's universal healthcare provision and then that's supplemented by targeted approaches related to the level of social need. Personally, I actually think they don't go far enough. I think the whole model of general practice is wrong. I think we focus too much on medications. We don't have good enough access to alternative therapies for physical and mental health problems. I think there's a chance that PCNs may be able to rebalance this a little bit in English primary care. But another editorial just highlights the difficulties with primary care networks. And although we've done pretty good at trying to make these work in a short space of time, they are um, really underfunded for the management structure of PCNs. And as for usual, the government is trying to do something that's very complex on the cheap. I digress. Back to health inequalities. And the BJGP has published a piece of research, which is a cross-sectional study of trends in general practice survey data looking at health-related quality of life between 2012 and 2017. And interestingly, they found that when you just look at overall health-related quality of life, actually that's been pretty steady over those five years. However, there is increasing disparity between certain groups. So young females and um, people in the most deprived areas of the country have increasing health inequality. And the main driver here in that decrease in health-related quality of life is a rise in anxiety and depression. For those of us in practice, this won't be a surprise. We've been seeing this and feeling this on a 
day-to-day basis increasing over years now. And all of this, of course, predates the pandemic, which has had its own unique effects on people's mental health. As per usual, this research points out the problem, but doesn't give us a solution. I think if you are in a PCN, one possible solution would be to focus on mental health as an, an urgent need for our population using some of that money to employ counsellors and psychologists if we can. Do you remember the days when we used to have counsellors in the practice? Those were the days, weren't they? It turns out that general practice is just like fashion. Everything comes back around eventually. And if I wear the same clothes as I do for a whole 20 years, then eventually, at one point at least, for one year, I will be on trend. Now, having said that general practice is not the cause of health inequalities, there are perhaps things we should be paying attention to, which is highlighted in another good piece of research in the BJGP. This is an observational study of primary care consultation length by deprivation and multi-morbidity. So this was data pulled from the UK GP databases via the clinical practice research data link between 2014 and 2016. Cut to the chase, the average consultation length was 11 minutes. For those patients who had six or more conditions, they had on average one minute longer than those who had none. So those with multimorbidity did get longer consultations, but not by much. They also found that consultations were half a minute shorter in those areas that were most deprived compared with those that were the least deprived. In the conclusion, the authors call for further research to assess the impact of consultation length on patient and system outcomes for those who have multi-morbidity. And I guess that would be welcome. We already know that those people who live in the most deprived areas generally have lower life expectancy, greater levels of illness and worse outcomes overall. But I don't think the consultation length is necessarily the big driver here. I wonder if the shorter consultation time is merely just representing cutting out of the overthinking and self-angst of the middle classes. When I've worked in areas of higher deprivation, I've always found it rather refreshing, to be honest. People come in, they often come in with just one problem. Their expectations are low. They don't want lots of explanation. And I hope that I would manage them in exactly the same way. But there is a risk that we fall into the trap of just focusing on the problem the person attends with. And we don't take the time to address the other issues that perhaps they're less concerned about with, but we know are a potential problem. Perhaps for me, the biggest shock in this paper is just that the average consultation length is 11 minutes, which is something I could hardly ever aspire to and seems to me far too short for a person who's got six or more chronic conditions. I think possibly even since the data was pulled from 2016, there's been an increasing shift to try and give more time for people with multimorbidity. And perhaps this is one of the biggest things that we can do in general practice to try and rebalance some of those health inequalities. Now let's move on from the BJGP and let's have a look at a primary care-based randomized control trial that's recently published in the BMJ. And this was looking at statin treatment and muscle symptoms, which continues to be an ongoing problem for many of our patients. They often complain of being troubled by muscle symptoms after starting a statin. And this was 200 patients who had recently stopped or considering stopping statin therapies because of their muscle symptoms. 
The really neat thing about this study was that they didn't just randomize people to placebo or atorvastatin 20, although that, that is the treatments that they were using, but they randomized them to a different sequences of two month blocks over the course of a year of of each of those. So a patient might go on a statin for two months, then a placebo for two months, then a statin, then a statin, then a placebo, then a placebo, or one of eight different combinations of those sequences. So patients really were kept guessing, plus for half the time they were really on a statin, and for half the time they really were on a placebo. So I think this is a really, really strong study. And the bottom line was no consistent difference either in individuals or overall for all the participants in the study of muscle symptoms, regardless of whether they were taking the statin or placebo. And interestingly, in the conclusion, the authors highlight that most people completing the trial intended to restart treatment of statins. So for those people who are really sceptical, who feel like they're really struggling, this could be a really interesting approach to try and get people back on the medications which might well help them. All I need now is a prescription pad that I can prescribe a placebo from, please. Okay, I think that's it for today. Now, the washing machine repairman has completed his work, and I'm pleased to say my diagnosis, my top diagnosis, was correct. There was a hole in the pressure hose. Now it's been replaced, and I can finally start washing the kids' clothes again that have been piling up for the last week. I'm going to sit here enjoying the glow of my clinical acumen whilst trying to pretend I'm not um, very disappointed by my level of surgical washing machine skills. And I may well see you on the Hot Topics course tomorrow or on demand if you're listening to this at some time other than uh, Friday night. Maybe you had something better to do. But if you don't, then you can get in touch as well. So email um, hottopics at mbmedical.com. Find us on Twitter at GP Hot Topics and at Dr. Neil Tucker. Find us on Facebook as well. And I'll be back in three weeks. Um, look after yourselves, people. Bye bye.